Ghost Yards podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 313, all about the history of alchemy with Sara Noria. We are so excited to have the, I would say, like, occasional occasion, not a rare occasion, but an occasional occasion where a spirits listener gets in touch and is like, hi, love you guys. I'm an expert in this kind of stuff, and I'd love to talk about my research on the show. And Sara, we are so, so excited to have you on the show talking about the history of alchemy and Finnish folklore and like all kinds of stuff that interests you. So welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I was really excited to get to be on the show because I have listened to Spirits for years and enjoy it so, so much. And I'm like, do I even dare to send them an email? I mean, I guess I'm an expert, <laughs> but, you know, that doesn't mean anything when you've got imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah, I say if you got a PhD, you're an expert. I mean, to be fair, I do. I do have a PhD, so I guess. You're like, it's true. I can't lie. I do. I do. <laughs> I cannot because I remember all those years. <laughs> I remember all that time I spent on it. I feel like I should be an expert at this point, but sometimes your brain says no. <laughs> I technically only aged as much as you aged during eight years of a PhD, but... <laughs> Feels like longer sometimes in academia, doesn't it? It really does. But, you know, a good time. I got to look at a lot of cool um, medieval and early modern manuscripts and other stuff like that, so... So that's nice. Yeah. Speaking of which, I mean, my associations with alchemy are mostly having it represented in fiction and books and TV shows and things like that as, you know, mad scientists searching for gold, searching for wealth, a thing that we used to do and has no relationship with the modern world. I'm sure none of that's true. So I'd love to hear if you could just start out by telling us about what specifically you studied and maybe what interested you about it initially. Awesome. Yeah. I'm a historical linguist, so I approached alchemy from a sort of linguistic, um, philological point of view. I'm especially interested in English language alchemical manuscripts. <laughs> what does philology mean? Oh, yes. Good question. Philology is basically the study of texts um, using methods like close reading. So really just looking deeply at the text. Context is everything in philology. Mm. So um, basically, it's historical linguistics, except you're looking at the context of the manuscripts that you're studying or the people who owned them, stuff like that, and looking at the very nitty gritty physical stuff as well as historical stuff. I did, I did some like actual linguistic analysis in my PhD as well, but that's less interesting than the material that I looked at, um, which was the English alchemical work, The Mirror of Alchemy. It was originally translated from Latin, and it got translated four times. Uh, so that's one of the things I was looking at. The translations were kind of the same, but also not. Mm. They exist in manuscripts from the 15th to 17th centuries. And also there's a printed version from 1597. Ooh. So um, I was basically comparing all of them and it was cool. That's awesome. Plus, I got to visit England and Copenhagen to look at the manuscripts. And I can tell you, there is no better feeling than being in an archive looking at manuscripts that are 100 years, sorry, 100, hundreds of years old. <laughs> and um, it's brilliant. One of my favorite things about research has been getting my hands into the manuscripts. Also, got to point it out, this is a PSA. You know, like, 
you're always sort of told in popular media that you need to wear white gloves yeah to look at the manuscripts no really basically if you wear gloves your hands are going to be more clumsy and thus you might accidentally like rip a page or smudge something Mm -hmm. clean hands no lotions or like perfumes or anything that's the best possible thing wow yeah this is one of those things that I get really annoyed by in like every popular media ever. So um, <laughs> just wanted to put that out there. You're like, no one does that. Put the gloves away. <laughs> You're not supposed to. Hands are fine. They're much more <laughs> dexterous, literally. Oh. I remember working in archives and the first day I was there, they were giving me a tour of the stacks. And then the person who was giving me the tour just handed me a book and I was like, what is this? He's like, well, it's George Washington's diary. I'm like, do I need gloves to be handling this? He's like, no, no, you're fine. The public doesn't touch those anyway. I'm like, <laughs> and that's like half as old as a 1590-something text. That's amazing. Yeah. I know. I feel like I would drop it immediately. Yeah. I have walked around in the British Library with a huge stack of old books. And that was like, I probably should have taken them in at least a couple of sections to my table because that was scary. I was like, oh, my God, I might actually... <laughs> drop these priceless manuscripts onto the floor but i didn't Uh, you get really strong as well (laughs) i imagine oh i'm sure arm day forearm yeah forearm strength for sure absolutely but yeah so in my phd i was looking at this very specific alchemical text so the different translations and how they related to each other and also I looked at the manuscripts in a lot of detail because, as I said, I love the material bits and I looked at manuscripts that basically no one else has studied that much. Because even though alchemy has actually been studied a fair bit in the past 20 or so years um, in terms of the sort of historical impact and stuff like that, um, alchemical texts haven't been used that much for language research. Mm. Actually, I found out a lot of things about the development of scientific language, even by looking at this one work, like the several versions of this single thing. So there's so much that could be done if more people were working on alchemical texts. And this is basically my mission in academia, <laughs> to try to get more people to join me to, <laughs> to work on this stuff. And so, yeah, then I ended up reading a load on the history of alchemy in general, just way more than I should have, really. But that's what you do (laughs) when you're doing a PhD. Also in Finland, uh, PhDs are free, as is all education, which is amazing. So that meant I got to faff around for a while. And um, even though I obviously needed to get funding, I didn't need to pay university tuition. So that's why I spent many a year doing this. I do have to ask, as someone who got a PhD in Finland, did you get a sword? I will get a sword. Um, I'm so glad that everyone knows this. It's (laughs) glorious. I haven't got a sword yet because I graduated or I finished my PhD last year, 2021. And um, you get the sword during this like conferral ceremony. And I didn't make it to this year's one. So like I'm waiting for the next ceremony. But I've already set aside money to buy myself my silly top hat and my amazing sword. (laughs) Yay! Excellent. This is very important. I was always going to get the sword. Good, good. Yeah, you know what our listeners care about. And one of the things they care about is if they knew about it, they're waiting on tenterhooks for us to ask. And if they don't know about it, they're frantically Googling finish PhD sword. Sadly, like, because I I started doing historical European martial arts, so, like, basically fighting with big swords. Oh, damn. uh, Recently. 
which is the coolest uh, thing, basically. But unfortunately, it's a different kind of sword mm. from the saber that you get for the PhD. So I'm going to need to learn a whole new fighting style, I guess, to defend myself. That's your decorative sword. That's the like breaking case of emergencies sword that lives on your wall most of the time. It's true. I mean, I am going to hang it on the wall. So Plus diversifying your uh, fighting style is very, very important in defense. Mm-hmm. So. That's true. That's true. Learning, too, is great. Yeah, like, got to catch them all. When it comes to swords. <laughs> <laughs> so can you give us a crash course in alchemy? I'm sure that you have done this lots of times of people being like, oh, yeah, lead to gold. That's it. Right. But it sounds like there are a lot of really important through lines between like scientific inquiry and just chemistry and all kinds of ways in which alchemy has set us up for society we live in now. I would love to give you a crash course in alchemy. And it's going to be like the tiniest scratch on the surface because I'm currently writing a nonfiction book on alchemy in (gasps) Finnish and my manuscript is way too long. And there's just so much to say (laughs) about the history of alchemy, but I will try to be brief. Incredible. Basically, the lead to gold thing is historically accurate. People were genuinely trying to transmute metals, especially lead to better ones, mainly silver and gold. So basically, the idea behind that is that there were seven metals known in the ancient world. And until as far as the 16th century or so, people knew these seven metals, you know, gold, silver, lead, iron, copper, mercury, and which one haven't I said? Tin. There we go. (laughs) So yeah, they were the seven metals that existed. Gold and silver are great. The others, not so great. Um, So basically, you want to get towards the more perfect metals. And the whole idea behind transmutation is basically people believed um, that metals were kind of like living things in the sense that they would grow and mature in the earth. Mm. And so the point of alchemy, one of the points of alchemy was to try to get those metals to mature faster through alchemical means. So the lead to gold thing is definitely true, but it's not the only sort of aspect of alchemy that was important. So I just have a quick qualifying question about the metals. The basic concept is they believed like if you left tin in the earth for long enough, it would turn to like silver or gold or something? Not quite. So the th- the idea was that like in nature, so like in deep, deep, deep in the earth, like in the, in the actual mines and stuff, um, like basically metals would kind of mature there and 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 stuff and there were very specific conditions for things to become gold and such so basically because people didn't know quite what the you know it was hard to recreate those conditions so then um they they tried to just do it with heat because obviously people had observed that inside the earth it's really hot like it gets hotter (laughs) so thus using an oven to heat things up and mix things makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's definitely one aspect. But in addition to this sort of like transmutational alchemy, so transmutation means the changing one metal to the other, specifically to gold or silver. Just like the X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> I think it makes total sense when you drill down on it, right? Like you you go deep into the earth and you find the metal there, much, much like a moss or mushrooms or produce. Yeah. Like it must have come somehow yeah. from some way. Yeah. And they're not wrong. Like there are specific chemical conditions that lead to the creation of metals. They just didn't know that it has to be like 2000 degrees Kelvin or whatever. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot about alchemy that makes sense. And I'll get to that in a tiny bit. So yeah, there's basically three main 
themes to alchemy, uh, European alchemy. And I actually, I will note that throughout I'm speaking about European alchemy um, because mm-hmm. there was also alchemy in like China and India, but it's very different and um, hasn't been studied that much yet. So I'm focusing on the European stuff. Um, but so basically the three main themes are transmutational alchemy. So changing metals to different metals, medical alchemy, which I'll get back to because it is indeed very cool. And then thirdly, um, the sort of mystical alchemy, which a lot of people think is the actual and only alchemy, I feel. The sort of like, oh yes, alchemy is magic, magic chemistry, which is how it's done in a lot of TV and books and everything. Like, alchemy is always magical chemistry when, in fact, historically, it's a lot more complex than that. I mean... Shocking. (laughs) (laughs) All of fiction got it wrong? Unbelievable. I mean, honestly, I've been trying to look for fiction that really does it right, and there isn't that much. And maybe Mm. I just need to write some, because I wear too many hats. And in addition to being an academic, I also write fiction. So Always an option. I would read it. I've been thinking about this, like, whole... It's not like alternate history. It's like alternate physics. Exactly. Like this world where alchemy just works. And actually, that's a really great, like, sort of segue into um, what I was going to say about, like, the logic of alchemy. Yeah. Especially as it was seen in the European Middle Ages. So basically, most people probably know Aristotle's four elements. So, you know, the basically Avatar the Last Airbender elements. (laughs) Yeah. Fire, water, earth, air. So, yeah, basically, the logic was that um, all metals and all substances are formed of these different elements in different proportions. Uh, So quite logically, if you change the proportions of something to like the proportions of gold, it will then become gold. Mm -hmm, Sure. I feel like this makes sense when your worldview is like that. Sure. And, you know, that's, that's logical. And another related theory which came about in the Middle Ages was that Metals specifically are formed from mercury and sulfur, mm-hmm. um, which are not quite the same thing as the actual physical items. This is going to be a common theme because alchemy is like, is this, but it's not that. And hmm, I don't know. I've only studied this for eight years. <laughs> it sounds like it's a lot of assumptions made off of observations that are just off, the, off, the, like going the wrong branch. Yeah. Like there's one right yeah. way and there's one wrong way. And they're like, that one, the wrong one. Pretty much. And um, a lot of alchemy really does make sense if you just accept the worldview of the time, which is why, for instance, I've studied it mainly as like an early science. Uh, because the text that I I was studying in my PhD treated alchemy very much as an early science. So that's one major thing. Mm-hmm. That's something that I really appreciate about doing the show and studying um, folklore and kind of ways of thinking and parsing the world in the past. Like, that's the work of history, right? To kind of make the past better understandable to us. And sometimes uncovering more details makes it feel more remote. But a lot of the time for me, it's like, no, people are making logical conclusions based on the evidence they have, like learning about development of astronomy. You know, until we had telescopes that were good enough, there's no possible way for us to know the things we knew. Like we invented math to understand the relationships between forces and things. And this makes total sense that like, yeah, of course, if you go into a cave and unearth gold like you do next door in a different cave, mushrooms, like sure, they they develop from conditions that are similar. Mm -hmm. It, I think, gives us a lot more empathy for people in the past. And for me, makes the decisions we're making now, it kind of removes 
lose my hubris a little bit to be like, <laughs> no, no, like we we aren't just kind of the only modern people who've ever understood things. Mm-hmm. People understood things plenty well. It, we just had less information than we do now. Absolutely. And um, I'm pretty sure that in 100 years, a lot of things that we're all about in terms of science will be considered a bit pseudoscience-y and weird, like alchemy is these days considered a pseudoscience. And it, it does bring me comfort. It's like, well, we we don't know everything. And people back then didn't know everything, but they were really trying. And what I find fascinating about alchemy is how it ties together like with things like weird mysticism and folklore but also with for instance the scientific revolution because wild fact that some people know but many people don't is that isaac newton was an alchemist whoa yeah that's awesome dude who invented the theory of gravity was also extremely (laughs) invested in alchemy and specifically also finding the philosopher's stone, which is actually an important term that I haven't brought up yet. But yeah, Isaac Newton was really into alchemy. There's a whole website dedicated to his alchemical manuscripts. That's one of the facts that blew my mind. Um, So I always want to share it. And it also shows how um, something as remote feeling as alchemy, as a like science, is actually not that far divorced from things that we consider sciences these days. It's just that they definitely were on the wrong track when it comes to how the world actually works. But a lot of the um, sort of experimentational mindset, things like that, were happening in alchemy. And um, it's actually really hard to distinguish between alchemy and chemistry in the early modern period. Mm -hmm. So especially in like the 16th and 17th centuries, Basically, at some point, alchemy fades away to become this sort of weird mystical thing and chemistry becomes the actual science. But um, there's a period of a couple of hundred years where it's just a bit vague and the terms are used interchangeably and a lot of different things are meant by both alchemy and chemistry. And it's really interesting. And I I love how it just the sort of um, vagueness of alchemy is delicious to me (laughs) alchemy i feel is somehow really interstitial in a way sort of lives lives in the margins even though at some point it was really popular you'd think that alchemy is like a medieval thing maybe i don't know if you think that but is that's kind of my assumption yeah when you think of alchemy it's medieval Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe into like early Renaissance, very slightly, but yeah. I my, those terms are vague to me. So mm-hmm. it's it's more a vibe than like a historical period. What I'm describing. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, the sort of Renaissance vibe is basically what you'd want because yes, alchemy was very cool in the Middle Ages, but basically, um, the Renaissance and sort of early modern period in general was when alchemy was really hot. Like so many people were looking for the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, so many people were like really into just making gold and also a lot of like kings and princes were really into having their own court alchemist as like a fashionable thing or as a strategically helpful thing as both really um but it was especially strategically helpful because i just read a thing today where like apparently at around that time so like around the 16th century there wasn't actually that much precious metal available in Europe. Sure. A lot of it was being brought from like the Americas, um, but there wasn't that much stuff out there. So people were genuinely concerned that they wouldn't have enough gold <laughs> to have a currency. 
Yeah. And thus alchemy became a nice solution. It's like, hey, if this guy can actually make gold, then we're set. So yeah, that that was definitely sort of like, it wasn't just weird, mystical or like fashionable. It was, they tried to help the sort of economic situation. Oh, yeah. No, I, again, like people were making policy decisions in the past before we called them policy decisions. Like, mm-hmm. absolutely. That is very strategically useful. This might be a silly question, but like, why were they so confident they could do it? Like, did people pretend they did it? Did people think they did it? Mm. Was there sort of just endless hope? Like, what was the attitude in the evolution like? You actually nailed quite a few of the attitudes, because <laughs> like with all things alchemy, people's attitudes wildly differed through the ages and and throughout even even just the early modern period. People did genuinely believe that it was possible to transmute metals. Um, this is partially because um, back in the day, the sort of, for instance, the lead they were using, the other sort of um, raw materials weren't as pure as they would be these days. Mm. So there might be like traces of gold or other stuff, and some of the other like materials that they used, not necessarily just metals, but other um, solvents and things. They could have small traces of precious metals, and thus, when you're left mm. with some kind of hint of gold, you're like, "Hey, something happened. Yeah, this is gonna work." Um, But there were, like, throughout the history of Western alchemy, there were debates about whether it actually works, whether transmutation is a thing, or if it's just all a lie. And there were also a lot of people who were just going around tricking people. So there's a lot of different ways that you can sort of perform an alchemical transmutation and fake it. So you can like, I was just reading about one today where, you know, you just have, you have like a, a rod that you'd use for stirring, like a metal rod mm-hmm. and it's hollow and you shove some gold up it mm-hmm. and then you um, put a little wax seal at the bottom. And when you stir your lead, which is molten, cause you know, you want to use a fire, you stir it with the rod and the wax melts and a bit of gold goes in and whoever you want to impress is like, okay, there's gold there now. <laughs> So there were a lot of alchemists like genuinely trying to do this. And then there were people who were like, I could, you know, do this like fake uh, demonstration and then ask for some gold so that I can make more gold. Because mm-hmm. And also like uh, all the materials needed for alchemy were very expensive because you'd need a good laboratory. You'd need really, really um, expensive things. So that is one way that people were sort of just duping each other but people did genuinely believe that it was possible because of the things i mentioned before about just the logic of okay so if everything's just mercury and sulfur in different proportions if we change the proportions we can create this better metal that's the logic but obviously a lot of people were also really critical and there's actually a huge amount of really alchemy critical literature kind of throughout the history of alchemy because a lot of people are like, no, it's just fake. And they're just, you know, doing it for the money. And this is how they will fool you. And um, it's possible that some of them just had bad experiences with alchemists. Who knows? Sure. Like sour grapes. <laughs> <laughs> like Harry Houdini and spiritualists. You oh, know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Who tended to become alchemists? Like, how did people get into it? Various ways. So um, 
you'd need to be able to know how to read and write if you were going to be get further in alchemy by yourself because um a lot of the information was transmitted through manuscripts and later in printed books so a lot of alchemists especially in the middle ages tended to actually be members of the clergy mm-hmm. which might be a bit surprising but they were you know they wanted to um get riches for their monastery or just you know just get some gold, I guess. Plus, they're educated people with time on their hands. Exactly. And like, basically, education was a thing that a lot of alchemists uh, did have. And um, they needed to know Latin, especially at the start. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was looking at in my PhD was how even in the 15th century, when English was still very much a language of the people and it wasn't a language of science that much, mm-hmm. even then they were translating al- alchemical stuff into English so that people who didn't know Latin could still have access to this information. So alchemy was sort of part of this like democratization of science and stuff like that. So you could also be an alchemist if you weren't like university educated. Mm -hmm. Oh, and alchemy was never a university discipline in the Middle Ages. (laughs) It's possible that they at the universities, they considered it to be too practical because it did always involve the practical work. It wasn't as pure right. as mathematics or something. But then again, you've got medicine, which is also very practical. So I don't really know why it wasn't one of the sort of core disciplines, but it wasn't. So um, it wasn't available there. But also alchemists didn't actually form guilds, unlike a lot of other medieval professions. So alchemy was kind of in the middle and a bit like, not really ostracized, but just sort of the odd one out. But yeah, you could definitely become an alchemist, even if you didn't have that much of an education, especially Mm. later on. So um, people would become these like sort of entrepreneurial alchemists or like more like sort of artisans rather than scholars. Mm -hmm. So um, there's definitely a sort of development um in that direction a practicing alchemist yeah. a working alchemist exactly. an alchemist of the people <laughs> yeah there's there's a very very much sort of like it's not like a strict divide but there is definitely the stereotype of the sort of scholar alchemist who's like i mean probably does experiments and stuff but it's very much about reading all the classical literature translated from arabic into latin because that was a thing alchemy came into Europe originally from the Arabs. So um, it's it's a very multicultural science, even in Europe. So yeah, you'd either have that or then you'd have the guy who's like at the fire, just going like, okay, going to make some gold. I learned from my (laughs) master how you need to do this. And I don't know how to read, but who cares? (laughs) Yeah, I watched close enough. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. So there's there's that sort of master and apprentice vibe, but also a lot of learning from books and um, stuff like that. And obviously we have most of our evidence is in the form of writing. So that's Mm. probably a bit skewed. But there's also a lot of archaeological evidence of like laboratories and various weird and cool alchemical stills and like vessels and stuff like that. I mean, of course there is, but I never thought to Google image search that. And so <laughs> I know what I'm doing after we hang up today. <laughs> there you go. There's, there's a lot of stuff out there, like Alembics and Crucibles and mm, other things with yeah. cool names. A lot of which were actually borrowed from Arabic as words. Like Alembic has got the Arabic al, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like definite article there. 
originally um what became alchemy originated in like egyptian and greek thinking about the world about matter in general and also um in ancient egypt they were pretty good at metallurgy like as yeah. we know a lot of amazing jewelry and dyes and everything so a lot of that sort of chemical experimentation combined with greek theories about the world and that sort of became what we know as alchemy when greek civilization basically collapsed the arabs sort of took took that and preserved all that knowledge and developed their own stuff and then eventually in around the 1100s when the like um at that point spain was an arab uh, controlled country mostly mm-hmm. but western europeans came into contact with arabs a lot during that time and also with their sciences which were very exciting and great and really well developed all the europeans are like oh my god actual science <laughs> so alchemy is part of that transmission of of science basically so even though i'm talking about european alchemy it's still very related to the whole sort of cultural areas around the mediterranean basically mm-hmm. and that shows in things like the names of things even just the name alchemy uh so the al at the start is again the definite article in arabic wow and um the kemi part is a bit contested it's the same root as chemistry mm-hmm. this is the linguist getting excited hell yes do it <laughs> so it's the same root as chemistry but we don't know what the chem actually means um there are some theories that it's the same word as kemet which is the old word for egypt which means like black land right but it might also come from a greek word meaning some kind of medicine so <laughs> it is a mystery as many things related to alchemy are yeah <laughs> well that's the problem with the history and folklore and everything like that mm-hmm. is there's never really like a clear path of like this is how it started this is how we got here there's so many different offshoots and the understanding that because a lot of these traditions are oral traditions, we're never going to know the exact pathway it took from yep. then to now. Which is also really fascinating because it means we mm-hmm. can still be studying that stuff in the 21st century, which is really cool. Yeah. And luckily we teach it in schools now because we think it's practical and it's fine. <laughs> I liked my chemistry lessons, I guess. Yeah. Um, we actually made like salty licorice during chemistry lessons. I feel Ooh, this is probably cool. a very Finnish Ooh. thing. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't remember what the specific bits are. I wish we had made candy or anything interesting and fun in our chemistry classes. <laughs> That's probably why I didn't like chemistry that much. I know. Ammonium chloride. Ooh. We made ammonium chloride, like basically just enough to put on a bit of paper and then you got to lick it and it tastes <laughs> like salty licorice. <laughs> Which is a Finnish classic thing to eat. So damn, that's amazing. Like the true, the true alchemy of like gross things becoming a delicious sweet. <laughs> that's amazing. Incredible. I would love to hear more about how alchemy was introduced to Europe, but first, let's break for a quick refill. Let's go. Hey, this is Julia, and welcome to the refill. The days here are getting shorter, but. In my mind, that just means I get to spend more time cuddled up on the couch being cozy, reading a book, or watching TV with Jake. And that's really nice, isn't it? 
So think about that as we tell you a little bit about what's going on here at Spirits and some of our sponsors. But first, let me thank our newest patron, Elizabeth. Elizabeth joins the ranks of our supporting producer-level patrons like Alicia, Anne, Brittany, Sakuda Makalata, Daisy, Fruity Chick, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, Jessica Stewart, Nieselkins, Lily, Megan Moon, Nathan, Nikki, Phil Fresh, Rico Like, Captain Jonathan, Malachi Cosmos, Sarah Scott, Spooky Lore, and Zazie, and of course, our legend-level patrons, Ariana, Audra, Bex, Chibi Yokai, Clara, Ginger Spurs Boy, Morgan, Sarah, Schmitty, and BME Up Scotty. And if you would like to join the ranks of our patrons, just a reminder, our Patreon is now monthly. That means that when you sign up, your tier is what you pay each month. It is simpler for you, gives us more tools. It's great all around. If you want more Urban Legends episodes every month, all of our patrons now have access to our monthly bonus episodes, plus the dozens that we've posted over the years. You can enjoy new benefits like tarot drawings, which I'm going to be releasing later this month, bonus video advice podcasts that Amanda and I do, and even more chances to connect with us. And if you want to get a whole year of Patreon support at a discount, you can sign up now for an annual plan. You can get all of that and more at patreon.com slash spirits podcast. I mentioned earlier curling up with a book and one that I want to recommend to you, which made me laugh and had a great time reading it. Amanda has turned me on to romance novels, y'all, and I have not looked back since, is The Wisteria Society of Lady Scoundrels by India Holton. Imagine Regency romance novel plus pirates plus magic because the pirates don't sail ships, they sail houses. And it is adorable and fun and starts with an assassination attempt and goes even wilder from there. So check it out. That's the Wisteria Society of Lady Scoundrels by India Holton. I also want to recommend another show from the Multitude Collective right now. I want to recommend another show that I am a player on, and that's Join the Party. Join the Party is an actual play podcast with tangible worlds, genre-pushing storytelling, and collaborators that make each other laugh each week. If you think me and Amanda make each other laugh each week, join the party upset game seriously dm eric and empathetic players me amanda and our friend brandon welcome everyone to the table from longtime tabletop rpg players to folks who have never touched a role-playing game before if you're not sure where to start you can hop in on our current campaign which is the camp pain it's our monster of the week story that's set in a weird and wild summer camp or you can listen to our campaign two which is a modern day comic book super powered story or campaign one which is a high fantasy epic that starts with a gay wedding what Whatever adventure you choose, Join the Party welcomes you to hang out with us each month for their after party, which is a session held to discuss the campaigns, joke around, and answer listener questions. So what are you waiting for? Pull up a chair and join the party. You can search for Join the Party in your podcast app or go to jointhepartypod.com. Now, you probably had a favorite bedtime story growing up. I know I did. The stories that can make you feel cozy in your bed and get you ready for a good night's sleep. And some of us enjoyed fairy tale endings. Some of us preferred lighthearted mysteries. So why shouldn't we have the same comfortable feelings as adults while we drift off to sleep? We've talked how much we love Calm's immersive sleep stories. They make falling into a relaxed and restorative slumber a breeze, and they bring you back to the well-rested nights of your childhood. Calm is the number one mental wellness this app and it gives you the tools that you need to improve the way you feel, whether it is the sleep stories, reducing stress and anxiety through guided meditations, improve focus with curated music tracks, and rest and recharge with their imaginative sleep stories. There's even their new daily movement sessions, which are designed to relax your body and uplift your mind. 
Over 100 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds. And Calm is ready to help you stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthier life. Honestly, the nights that I use Calm Sleep Stories to fall asleep usually are the best sleep of my life. Like, it takes my mind off of everything that is stressing me out and just lets me think of something that's calm and beautiful and worthy of dreams, seriously. And for listeners to the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash spirits. Go to calm.com slash spirits for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash spirits. All right, if you're like me and you're wondering where the time went and could use a little help getting ready for this holiday season, Brooklinen has you covered. Brooklyn and makes holiday hosting so easy, you may be tempted to do it again next year. And they've got everything you need to outfit your guest room, grab a great gift, or treat yourself to something cozy. Brooklinen's luxurious home essentials feel as good as they look, and they offer something for everyone, yourself included. Whether you're searching for accessories or investing in the forever favorites that make a house a home, Brooklinen is a sure bet. And let me tell you, both my bedroom and my guest bedroom have Brooklinen sheets, and I have my cousins come over every once in a while, and they basically beg to stay with me because they love those sheets so much. And maybe also because it's me and I'm a great host, but I think part of it is the Brooklyn and Sheets. Finding everything you need for your dream space can be exciting and a little overwhelming, if we're being honest. With Brooklyn's thoughtful bundles, you're literally all set. They've done the work for you with combinations for bed, bath, or both that save you time and money. With bundles, your holiday hosting prep has never been simpler. On top of all of the coziness on the horizon, Brooklyn is offering something extra special for first-time customers. Visit brooklinen.com today and save 15% off your first purchase plus free shipping. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com for 15% off your purchase plus free shipping. Thanks, Brooklinen. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you've ever wished, man, I wish I just had a book or a user manual to know how to have conversations with people, know how to cheer myself up when I'm feeling down, know how to get out of these negative cycles that I find myself in. I have good news for you. BetterHelp Online Therapy is basically the next best thing to that imaginary user manual. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure whether it is career changes or relationships or becoming a parent, and therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of these challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills, which makes therapy the closest thing you get to a guided tour of the engine that is your brain. When I am ever having any doubts, it is super easy for me to just message my therapist through BetterHelp and talk out these really difficult feelings while I'm having them. And then we can talk about it when I've had a little bit of time to think about and feel those feelings. And I think that's really, really helpful and would be really helpful for anyone who's having difficult feelings. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professional, licensed, and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash spirits. That's betterhelp.com slash spirits. And now let's get back to the show. I actually wanted to continue about the sort of Arabic loanwords thing in terms sure. of the word elixir, which is probably familiar to you as like an elixir of life. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. What is the elixir of life like? What is it? What do you think about when you think about that term? 
I picture a tiny glass vial full of gold liquid that like a king commissioned from an alchemist and it's going to extend his life forever so he can always be king. Seconded. (laughs) Yep. So I'm glad that you mentioned the sort of indefinitely because I feel like a lot of people think that the elixir of life in European alchemy is all about immortality. But actually, that is a misconception. It was more about just lengthening your life because in the Christian worldview, immortality would actually be unchristian mm-hmm. because you need to have the you know second coming and everything. So the point of the elixir was to try to create some kind of nice medicine that would extend your life. And even in the Old Testament, there were examples of people living to be really old, like hundreds of years. So that's basically what people were going for. Mm-hmm. In Chinese alchemy, the elixir is more related to immortality because that's the thing in the sort of mm. traditions around that part of the world. So I think it's another really interesting example of how like the sort of culture that you're in also determines the alchemy, basically. Yeah. And this is why I would love to know more about Chinese and Indian alchemy, but they're really a lot of the research done on those is pretty old. And um, very done by Europeans, so it's not like great. So I should, after I've finished my book on European alchemy, I will definitely be looking into what's been done on alchemies around the world because there's a lot. That's awesome. And we'll have to have you back to talk all about it. But that's a really wonderful segue into medical alchemy, which makes, again, a ton of sense now that you say it. But I'd love to hear more about what that was, what its project was, and how it was distinguished from spiritual. Excellent. Medical alchemy became a really big thing, again, in the Renaissance period. Alchemy in general, like I said, was really big back then, but especially medical alchemy was the greatest thing. This is basically not entirely due to, but due in great part to this one guy called Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. (gasps) Oh my, that kept going. I'm going to be Bombastus (laughs) from now on. That's my new name. (laughs) Who changed his name to Paracelsus for, I consider, obvious reasons. (laughs) Because Good branding decision, Mm -hmm. for sure. And I will actually point out, for all the Full Metal Alchemist fans out there, the von Hohenheim guy in that show is totally a reference to this guy. There you go. Paracelsus was this really weird guy who basically (laughs) wanted to fight the medical establishment of his time, which was really, like, basically the medicine of that time operated on completely different logic from what it does these days. And that only started to change, like, well, when we got stuff like microscopes and could Mm -hmm. actually observe how bodies work and stuff. Where they're like, wait, what if we washed our hands after touching corpses before delivering babies? It's the miasma. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Paracelsus was like, apparently this really like terrible person. He just like insulted everyone, traveled around Europe, got banned from a lot of countries because of his awful personality. (laughs) And... um, He was also a really great reformer of medicine. So he theorized that basically medicine is chemistry, which, as we know these days, not not too badly wrong when you want to make medicine. It's pretty useful to Mm -hmm. use some nice healing potions that are based on like actual (laughs) chemical reactions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But so, yeah, he was he was really into medical alchemy and um, he basically popularized the whole thing. So. 
basically the point of medical alchemy was to create different medicines to, you know, cure various diseases, you know, do whatever medicine does, but achieved in ways that were achievable through alchemical means. And also one thing that was major at that point in around the 1500s, by that time, distillation, which had developed a lot through alchemy, mm-hmm. was so good at that point that you could get really strong alcohol and like preserve things in it and also like dilute things. And, you know, there was a lot of stuff you could do with distillation. And I still think it's really cool that like we basically get whiskey because of alchemy in a way, which yes, yes, I love whiskey. So it's great. <laughs> like looking at or, or even rum, you know, looking at a rum still, it's like, a you know, that's that's alchemy just how it is 100% um but yeah medical alchemy was was really big on on that kind of thing just you know trying to heal people creating a lot of medicines a lot of women were actually really into medical alchemy so mm. alchemy is very male centric but there actually are quite a lot of women uh, even known by name and um a lot of them were active in the 1500s and 1600s and that's obviously when we just get more records in general and a lot more women were able to read and write at that point. So especially noble women were really into making medicines and like yeah. creating all sorts of concoctions in their laboratories, which is cool. Incredible. I feel like that's why so many like young girls have that idea of like, I'm going to make potions in the woods outside my house. <laughs> it was yes. just we're just learning from our, our uh, forefathers here. Oh, definitely. So. Definitely. Or foremothers, I guess. <laughs> so, I mean, it kind of is what it says on the tin is then spiritual alchemy. How is that distinguished? So spiritual alchemy is a sort of it's an interesting thing because I feel like at least to me when I started researching alchemy, I was like, OK, so it's all about the weird symbols and the spiritual stuff. And you probably want to like somehow ascend towards God or whatever. Um, but actually, it's it's sort of a like strand that runs through alchemy, but becomes more dominant towards like the sort of modern period even. Mm. Um, so basically people were always really into the spiritual parts as well. Um, like because alchemy was born in, especially at the point where Muslims encountered it and Christians. Um, so then it was really strongly tinted by the idea that like, okay, so God is what will finally decide or you know god is the one who's going to decide if this works which is actually really handy because if you've done everything right uh, but it still doesn't work well god just wasn't favorable it wasn't your day Mm -hmm. (laughs) makes sense which again it must not be that different from crops failed inexplicably children were stillborn people died when you didn't expect them like a thing you thought worked wouldn't work it's not you know it's not the sort of laughable excuse that i think we're kind of led to believe depending on where you grew up and what your values were yeah yeah basically like alchemy as a gift of god is a theme that runs through from the very early arabic alchemy period to to like through the middle ages and the renaissance so that's one aspect of spiritual alchemy. Also, some alchemists thought that in order to actually make the philosopher's stone, so the thing that will actually transmute your metals, you need to be really pure and like religious and faithful and everything. Um, so that's that's one aspect. But then spiritual alchemy really developed into its own thing, especially in like the 19th century. So like sort of the 
early Victorian era and later. They were horny for spiritualism of all kinds. <laughs> they were. It was all, it really fits in with the whole like excitement about everything occult. Yes. And at that point, alchemy had developed into this sort of occult thing because, you know, chemistry was a thing and no one really believed that you could make the Philosopher's Stone anymore. Um, so alchemy had just become this sort of historical thing of the past, basically. But then people got really excited about like the whole symbolic nature of like, okay, so um, let's create the Philosopher's Stone of my heart and like, you know, my soul will ascend towards God, just like the metals develop towards gold and things like that. So it became a really big thing. And there were even a lot of people who theorized that alchemy was never actually about the laboratory work. It was always about like, you know, making yourself the vessel for the transmutation. So there was a lot of wild stuff going on. And that really influenced a lot of modern people's views on alchemy, I think. Interesting. Yeah, because that's the most recent sort of depiction or example we have. Yeah. Yeah. Although, interestingly, I feel like because there's a lot of people said like, oh, yeah, like alchemy died out and then it came again. And actually, the more I've researched it, the more it was actually going on somewhere all the time. And um, even to this day, there's this website called Alchemy Forums. <gasps> and there's people who seem to be doing actual physical alchemy there. Like, it's a bit weird to me. I mean, it's cool that people do this, but like, I'm not sure if they're doing it from a historical recreation point of view or if they think that something will happen but um mm -hmm. but these days definitely the more common thing is like spiritual alchemy and um i feel like i was looking at stuff like alchemy talk and alchemy on instagram and it felt like a lot of oh. that was just about like you know just spiritual ascendance and not even using alchemical symbols so i was a bit disappointed honestly <laughs> i wanted them to use weird alchemical symbols <laughs> you're like ask me about the language i know about it yeah <laughs> it's like oh i mean it was like any kind of you know spiritual you can ascend thing and i was like yeah but talk about the philosopher's stone oh, let's, please <laughs> let's do real alchemy here <laughs> let's do the real stuff none of this morality science thing that you're trying to do over there no 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 <laughs> i feel like these these days it feels like alchemy is just like it, it can mean any sort of magic that means transformation, mm. which is basically, from what I gather, the main point of a lot of modern magic. So, you know, I feel the term has been diluted a bit. Seems like that. Maybe it's just because people don't have as uh, fantastic an understanding about it as you do in the history and the context of it. Yeah, and there's there's like a lot of, I mean, it's not like it's the most normal thing that we learn about in school, even though a lot of people <laughs> probably learned about the Philosopher's Stone. And obviously, there are books that have popularized some of this, which I shall not name because of <laughs> reasons of evil authors. Mm -hmm. Bad people, yeah. But that's probably why a lot of people know the Philosopher's Stone. So there's definitely not been that much popularizing of alchemy. Although I do have a book recommendation. Ooh, please. So if... If you want to read like a sort of well-researched but also very accessible book on the history of alchemy, uh, it's called Secrets of Alchemy by Lawrence M. Principe. So yeah, Secrets of Alchemy is a really good book. I think it's accessible to people who are not historians or, you know, know nothing about alchemy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very related to the sort of scientific history of alchemy, but I think it's a great read. So if you want to kind of get a more coherent 
account of alchemy, that's definitely <laughs> where you should go. Well, Sarah, you're talking to two people who are fascinated in the thing that you just spent many years of your life studying, <laughs> and we can only touch on so much in a sub-hour-long podcast episode. But I would love to invite you to let folks know where they can follow you online if they want to stay up to date on your work and the book that you're eventually publishing. Absolutely. So um, I am still on Twitter uh, sporadically. I'm at such wonderings. S-U-C-H-W-A-N-D-E-R-I-N-G-S. Why did I pick such a long username? Who knows? <laughs> I'm also under that same name on Instagram, which is where I hang out a bit more these days. And um, my website is saranoria.com. And that's where you can find my writerly things. Not so much my academic things, but I do have an ORCID ID so you can go and check out my research if you desperately want to. <laughs> I guarantee you people will. <laughs> that's where I hang out. And um, please, you know, send me a message on Instagram or tweet at me while Twitter still exists. <laughs> Happy to answer any questions about alchemy and all of that. Amazing. Beautiful. Well, we'll have to have you back to talk about one of the thousand things I have been thinking about during this episode. <laughs> but Sarah, thank you so much. And folks, as you are out looking for the philosopher's stone of your chemistry lab or your heart, remember, stay creepy, stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us in your urban legends and your advice from folklore questions at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes goodies. Just a dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more, like recipe cards, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, for every single episode, director's commentaries, real physical gifts, and more. We are a founding member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. Above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please text one friend about us. That's the very best way to help keep us growing. Thanks for listening to Spirits. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.